Mm, well, thank you guys for your service. I, I love church, and I love this church. I came when I was a 20-year-old college student, never left, and it's been full of people who are courageous, who are loving, who are bold, and who would serve, and it's just been a, a wonderful, wonderful ride to be a part of that. You know, even in transition, we were talking this week, and we'll probably never use that word transition again, um, but just all the great things that God is doing here. We thought of our children's program where children are learning the truths of God, but parents are being taught spiritual parenting, how to parent your kids spiritually. We thought of our youth group that every student, high school and junior high, has a mentor in a small group. We thought of our five-week marriage classes that are starting. What great opportunity to grow in communication and finances in different ways. Our disabilities ministry, because of that ministry, folks can come to church who ordinarily could never go to church. Our rooted groups, our small groups, our adult fellowships, our Sunday communities. It's just wonderful to be a part of this great body where so much good is happening and so many neat things are happening. But today I have a bigger ask. That's ask. My wife said to pronounce that properly. A-S-K. <laughs> Although we've given a lot, God still calls us to greater and further things. We're in week three of a Go series where uh, Dave Runyon came and talked about the art of neighboring. The commandment of Christ summed up in two words, or two things. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, and mind. And love your what? neighbor as yourself. And you got those little yellow bingo cards where you could write the name of your neighbor. How many got those and filled some names out? Uh, Yeah, okay. A few of you. Awesome. We did in our neighborhood. Who's there in our neighborhood? Then last week, Todd talked about God has a heart for for not just our neighbors, but the, the whole world. We're to go. But, but, but what are we to give? What are we to give the world? One of the stories this week that was shared was of a, a young gal who grew up in a motel nearby with a, a parent. And it's difficult living, if, if you can imagine, and had a difficult time. And, and recently, although was in school, found herself in a, <clears throat> a group home and right before Christmas. And although she was doing well in her studies, the situation was she was taken away and she, she was in this group home. And in the meantime, one, some of our families from our church have been studying on how to be foster parents. And they happened to go to this group home to meet this person uh, Christmas Eve, and the social worker just happened to be there. And they made a connection. The social worker said, hey, would you want this, this, this girl to come be a part of your family? Mm, that's emotional. And so this past Christmas, she was in a living room with a Christmas tree for the first time in her life. The gospel transforms, empowers, unleashes justice and joy and purpose. That's what we have to give. We have the gospel that has so much, is so rich, is so free. So we're going to talk about the gospel starting in the book of Acts today. And we'll do a few verses from the book of Acts because this is where the gospel starts. This is where this good news starts. This is where the transformation starts. Jesus, after he had come, lived a sinless life. He modeled his life. He lived. 
He died, was crucified, rose again. He met with his disciples, and in Acts 1.8, he says this, but you, my disciples, will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even the remotest part of the earth. I am going to leave, but you are the ones that are going to share the gospel. And the disciples did that. In Acts 1 through 9, we have the disciples sharing the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the area there. Peter's the main figure in Acts 1 through 9. He's up preaching. He's being beaten. He's being imprisoned. But he's faithfully sharing the gospel. And then in Acts 10, there's a pivot. Something changes. Just like last week, we talked about Genesis 12 being a pivot, where things were going downhill, and God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your family, and through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And there was a pivot where God uses Abraham and the children of Israel to bring salvation to the whole world. And in Acts 10, we have the same type of pivot, because Jesus was only for the Jews at that time. Peter was sharing to the church in Jerusalem. The church was growing in Jerusalem. But in Acts 10, something happens that changes all that. Something happens in Acts 10, which is the reason you and I are here in Fullerton this morning worshiping the living God. Let me read Acts 10, verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Caesarea was dominated by Romans. He was the big dog Roman in this community. He was over all the people. They were under him. He was the big guy. But in verse 2, look at it. He said he was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household. He gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So although he was the boss, he was from Rome, he was over all these people, the passage says he was religious, he was generous, he was zealous, he was religious, he prayed, he was devout, he was generous, he gave even to the Jewish people, even the people who he was subjugating, he was generous to them, and he was, de- he was zealous, he was devout, he was in the praying regularly. But as you go on to Acts 10, something was missing in Cornelius' life. Let me tell you the story. Because right after in the next verse, there's a vision that comes to Cornelius. And a vision comes and Cornelius is told, I want you to send two of your men down the road to a house where there's a guy named Peter. Call him to come and talk to you about what you're missing. Cornelius sent his men. They went. In the meantime, Peter had just arrived at the house. It was noon. He was hungry. They were preparing lunch, but he went up to the roof to pray. And while he was praying, he fell asleep, like some of us may, maybe not. And he has a dream, and he dreams about food. Well, it was more than a dream. It was really a vision. God brought a sheet down in this vision of unclean and clean animals and told Peter he could eat either one, and there was a confusing thing. And it was in the mindset of Peter that Peter knew that the Jews could only eat clean animals, not unclean. And it was a picture of... The gospel was just for the Jews, not for those who were not Jews. And in that vision, Peter realized, wait a minute, the the gospel's for everybody? And while he's waking up, there's a knock on the door downstairs. No coincidences with God. The two men have come to the house and said, we're looking for Peter. Peter says, I'm the guy. They said, Cornelius wants to see you. 
Peter could have thought he was in big trouble. He'd been in trouble before. He goes over to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius says this, I'm religious, I'm generous, I'm zealous, but I'm missing something. And Peter listened to Cornelius, and then in chapter 10, verse 34, Peter tells him what he's missing. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Now in this brief three-point sermon, Peter says, one, Jesus is not partial. God is not partial. God is not for anyone over anyone ethnicity-wise, or over any nation. Secondly, God is not racial. Doesn't matter what nation, what ethnic group, God is not racial. The third point is Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. So Cornelius is sitting there wondering, what am I missing? Okay, I'm generous. I believe in a God, but who is this Jesus? What is this gospel that transforms empowers, unleashes justice and joy and purpose. What is that? I'm sure Peter shared with him the good news of Jesus Christ. One way I remember it is the Romans Road. It's three verses in Romans that talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me just share those with you quickly. The first one is Romans 3.23. You may have memorized it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. We think of when we look at the news, we see evil in the world. We look in the mirror, the first person we see in the morning is kind of, whoa, yeah. We're all born in sin, the scripture says. We all do things that are wrong. We're all, all apart from God. Born apart from God. But then Romans 6, 23 says this. The wages of sin, because all have sinned, the wages of sin, bad news, is death. Is death. Because we are born in sin, because we do what is wrong, we are destined to die not only physically, but spiritually. Separated from a loving, pure, heavenly God. No hope. The wages of sin is death. There's consequences to what we do. When my son stole something from a store, I had to take him back there and let him give it back. There's consequences, and the consequences of sin is death. But the second part of that verse, Romans 6.23 is, but the free gift of God is eternal life to those who are in Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, we've all sinned. The wages of sin is death. Where's this free gift come in? God shared the consequences of all our sin upon Jesus Christ. He came and lived a sinless man, Jesus. He died on a cross, and on the cross, Good Friday, the wrath of God for all sin, all our sin, the sin of all the dictators of the world, came on Jesus that day. That's the whole horror of Good Friday. The sin came on him so that if we trust in Jesus Christ for paying our sins, we have a free gift of eternal life. So all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. 
The wages of sin is death, but there's a free gift. How do I get it? Romans 10.9 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We will get that gift. And that's the good news Peter had shared with Cornelius. There's good news. You may be generous. You may be zealous. You may be religious. You may look good, but you're missing something if you don't have Jesus because he is Lord of all. Cornelius accepted the gift. His whole household did. And the mission of God continued to move. We see in Acts chapter 13 where it continues to move. The gospel, this good news. Now some of you may have just heard the gospel, the good news for the first time. And you're saying, wow, I'm not sure I believe it yet. How can I know it's true? God says, there's no man that cometh to the Father but by me. True life is in Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes we argue, and sometimes we argue against things that are immovable. Like the captain of the ship who sent a signal as he saw a light ahead of him through his signal man, tell that other ship to move 10 degrees to the north. So they sent the signal, move 10 degrees to the north. The signal came back, those light signals, you move 10 degrees to the south. Oh, it's on, this captain thought. So he said, I'm captain. Tell him, I'm Captain Jones, move 10 degrees to the north. So they did the signal, you move 10 degrees to the north, I'm Captain Jones. The signal came back, you move 10 degrees to the south, I'm first class Seaman Jones. Wow, the captain's thinking, who's coming against me? So he sends another signal. Tell him, this is a battleship. So he sent the signal, move 10 degrees to the north, I'm a battleship. And the signal comes back, you move 10 degrees to the south, I'm a lighthouse. (laughs) Arguing, right? We got to watch what we argue about. Jesus said, I am come to give you life. And we have that opportunity to be invited to the family of God. And the mission goes on. Acts 13, verse 2 their first missionary journey, because all the church were witnesses. The church was growing. It was growing daily. They were sharing everything, but they wanted to send some further away to tell those that hadn't heard they were called missionaries. And while they were ministering, that's the elders in Acts 13, to the Lord, and they were fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. The first missionary journey The elders are listening. God calls them and says, send two of your guys out of the church to a further place. And they went and they came back and great things had happened. In Acts chapter 16, the second missionary journey, they're sent again and something interesting happens in Acts 16 verse 6 as they're going on this journey. So they pass through the Phrygian and the Galatian region having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They're leaving Israel. They're going north. They want to go right into Asia. But they're told no. In verse 7, And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia again. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. That's interesting. They're just trying to take the good news. They just want to give people the good news. But somehow, I don't know how that happened. They were just told don't. And in verse 8, by passing by Messiah, they came down to Troas. So they took a left towards Europe. They go down to the shore, the Mediterranean. 
And while they're there, in verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia, over in Greece, over in Europe, was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the what? The gospel to them. They're going. They're sharing. But something stops them. So they still want to go. And they get this voice, come over to Europe. Come over to Europe. So they go. They go. And in verse 14, we see what happens. They went over, and a woman named Lydia, they sailed over, which is very important because I love sailing. I'd love to be one of these guys. You know, they're just, Paul had 26 sailing sailing um, legs in Acts. You didn't need to know that, but I, I like that. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening to them. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now it says Lydia was what? A worshiper of what? Of God. She was religious. She was zealous. She was generous. But she was missing something. The gospel. So Paul shares with her. And in Acts 16, it says in verse 15, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia, the first convert in Europe, the first person in Europe to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to grasp the gospel and say yes that gospel that transforms, that empowers, that unleashes justice and joy and purpose. And then it moves on in Acts 17, verse 4. They go on to Thessalonica. Paul is moving ahead in verse 4. It says, and some of them were persuaded and joined. Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. They go to Thessalonica. Again, they share the gospel. Again, people respond. In verse 10, they go to another city. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they had arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Now, you have to realize they were more noble-minded because after Paul had preached the scriptures, he was beaten and thrown out of the city. So things got a little rough there. There was some persecution. But there in Berea... It says they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to say, seeing if these things were so. In verse 12, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek men and women. They're pressing further into Europe, further into Greece. In verse 16, they get to the big city. They get to Athens. And it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing a city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who had happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So Paul moves further into Europe. He gets into Athens and he sees something very different. A city full of many gods. The Epicureans were actually atheists. They believed in no god at all. The Stoic philosophers were pantheists. They believed in many gods. Everything was a god. Every living thing was a god. There were secularists there. Those that believed that we can make it ourselves. We are the Greeks. There were all types of people there. Those that were tolerating 
all these. And Paul walked in there and he said, something is wrong. You're missing something. And then he gives this great sermon in Acts 17 from 22. We won't read it, but it's a three-part sermon. He says, one, there is a God. There is one God and he's the creator. This is the one you're trying to worship. You're missing something. He is God. Second point was God is personal. God loves you. God loves all people. The third point was an invitation where Paul said, would you follow him? Will you follow this God? Will you repent from many gods and follow the one living God? So here's Paul on his missionary journeys. He's moving towards Europe. The gospel is moving. Things are happening. People are being transformed. People are being empowered. In Acts 18, he goes into Corinth. In Acts 19, he goes into Ephesus. And because Paul obeyed God and moved into Europe, you and I are sitting here in Fullerton, forgiven, with hope, knowing the love of the Savior, having a future, because the gospel would not be stopped. Those that received it passed it on. Now, some would conclude the gospel has got to us. Let's stop it right here. Now, none of us would say that, but probably a lot of us act that way or live that way. I got the gospel, but I'm not going to spread it. I don't think that's who we want to be. And as a church, our church history, we've been one that has sent out hundreds of missionaries. We have 80 missionaries overseas now. We have projects in Rwanda, in China, in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam. But we've been praying the last four years, to tell you the truth, asking God, where would you want us? Because we don't want the gospel to stop with us. That's as leaders. Let me ask you, as people of the church, and you can respond vocally, would you like the gospel to stop with us? That was weak. Okay. Would you like the gospel to stop in Fullerton? No. No. So the leadership of the church has been praying. And five years ago, we had an idea, and God said no. And four years ago, we had an idea, and God said no. And three years ago, we had an idea, and God said, look, I just want you to concentrate on Love Fullerton. I want you to start OC United. I want the people of Fullerton to start communicating with their neighbors. Every year, we've been praying and meeting. God, when do you want us to go? Where do you want us to go? Who do you want us to go to? And just in the last few months, we felt this freedom of God saying, I want you to go to the epicenter of the drama of what's happening in the world today. I want you as a church to stand up and love Europe. Would you love Europe? And you go, seriously? Europe? That's where the gospel came from. They have it together. They wouldn't listen to the rest of us. I'm glad Paul didn't respond to those questions. I'm glad he pressed on. To answer the question, why Europe, I'd like you to watch this short video. Europe is the only continent on earth in which the church is in severe decline. It is as though the body of Christ is bleeding from the heart at this time. 
Europe desperately, desperately, desperately needs people to go and talk about Jesus. While the church worldwide experiences unprecedented growth, churches across Europe are closing their doors. Looking at the British statistics, the, the decline that we have known for the last 50 years is reaching the point where a number of our denominations are now saying, if the current trend continues for another 20, 30 years, we will be extinct, we will have no churches left. As Christianity in Western Europe takes a back seat, the spiritual, moral and social consequences reverberate throughout society. The land that once sent missionaries to reach the unevangelized world has become a place of increasing darkness, in need of mission. Many have described uh, Europe as post-Christendom, and that means that where the gospel once was central uh, in our culture and our society, indeed in the very history of Europe, which was shaped by Christianity, that the gospel is now marginalized. While the church struggles for its very survival, the remnant of faithful Christians face another great challenge, how to deal with a massive migration of foreigners that have come to work and live in their cities. I believe today the challenge for the church is to recognize that the ends of the earth now are also on our doorstep. Every worldview is expressed here, every background is expressed here, every religion is expressed here, and it must be possible now to see the kingdom of heaven penetrate into all that. With the Muslim call to prayer replacing the sound of church bells in cities across Britain and Europe, who will reach these deeply entrenched communities with the gospel? In the light of 9-11 and other recent events, the stakes are too high to ignore. Yet the Muslims of Europe remain almost totally unreached. And I believe that the flow of history does depend on the obedience or disobedience of God's people. And I think we have to rise to the occasion and recognize that um, the body of Christ in cities that have a significant Muslim presence should not withdraw, but reach out, build bridges to the new Europeans. One of the most encouraging signs of hope for Europe is the children of mission who have left their nations to come to the land of their spiritual fathers. So we feel indebted to the church in, in the continent of Europe, and there's that feeling we want to give back from those who brought to us such value. Brazilians Lauro and Rosani Castelli left a successful ministry of 10 years in India to come to Belgium, a place they found to be spiritually even more needy than India. We come to Europe where uh, apparently it's a first world country uh, where people have everything, it's a good social security, good education, but spiritually uh, I've never seen uh, such a great misery in my life. So I think for us coming here into Europe is like uh, for us we are saying thank you Europe because one day you came to us <laughs> and now uh, we see the need in Europe. Another great sign of hope for the church is the commitment of young European Christians. It's going to take young people actually starting to live what they say they believe for Christianity to take root in Europe again. An international prayer movement called 24-7 is inspiring Christians around the world with a passion to pray. 24-7 prayer is for any age, but has struck a chord with Christian young people. 
as we have journeyed with God, he has really spoken to us about turning the prayer into mission. So I would say that we have moved from being a prayer movement to being much more a mission and justice movement that has realized that the heartbeat, the center, the lifeblood must be prayer. A call to mission and prayer for Europe resounds to the church around the world. I want people to pray for Europe because God is doing something marvelous here. Not to give up on us, not to be despairing because we lost the first fruits of the gospel, but to know that the full harvest will be richer than it's ever been. It's time to give back to Europe what it so sacrificially gave out to the nations. And it's time to invest lives, money, time and everything back into Europe and believe God for revival. Mm. Mm, back to Europe and trust God for revival. When you came in, you were given a little pamphlet here that explains what we'd like to do as a church. Um, the staff is all committed to going. We'd like a few people to go with us, if you'd like to, if you feel called to. We want everyone involved. So on the front page, it talks about the vision um, of a call to prayer. We can all pray, and we're going to start a prayer meeting every, fri every other Friday night, 6 to 7 p.m., praying for the people, the continent, the countries of Europe. There's a call to give because raising support for all these folks who are going. We have 25 teams. As we said, we'll go to Europe. 25 of our partners have called us, emailed us, said, would you come? It was like that Macedonian call. Will you come and help us? Will you come and stand with us? Will you come and support us? Will you come and share the gospel? And we're saying, yeah, we're coming. I hope. A call to adopt is the third one. If some can't go, but we're having for every team that goes, there's a Barnabas team, a team that stays here to pray for the team, an encouragement team, support the team, get the team to the airport, a Barnabas team. And then we have multiple projects for those that can't go to want to buy a teddy bear for some of these kids who are refugees or buy Bibles for the distribution of Bibles we're going to be doing in Europe. So there's all kinds of ways to be a part, to pray, give, adopt, and definitely go. On the back, you'll see a list, a partial list of some of the teams of some of the partners that have asked us to go. One of them is in six weeks. We have a leader. We said we'd go. So I'm looking for eight people who want to go to Lesbos, Greece. That's on the beach, a few miles from Turkey, where refugees are coming. They're streaming and helping them into the refugee center where they can get help and hear the good news of Jesus Christ with our partners. I said we've got a team of 10 coming in six weeks. I may have to go too. What a great opportunity. Some of you have seen this on TV and you've said, I want to be there. This is your opportunity. We have several of those teams throughout the summer. There's another one, Pietroco, Poland. 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, our youth, our high school, spent eight years in Poland building this church from the ground up, the foundation. Now the church is there, and the pastor and the people have said, would you come back? We have a lot of youth in the area. Does anyone in your church speak English? They want to talk English. I think there's a few people in Fullerton that talk English. Yes, just come with us, hang out during the day, teach us English and share, your, share the good news of Jesus Christ. This gospel that transforms and empowers, unleashes justice, purpose, and joy. 
There's other teams in Budapest. There's art, a team where we're doing an art exhibit. We want artists from our church. We have another art camp in um, London. Uh, We need a sports camp. So as you look through here, there's folks needed for all types of backgrounds, all types of gifts and skills. But above it all, it's just a willing spirit to say, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. The gospel came to me. I'll go take the gospel a little further than my comfort zone. So that's the big ask. How does God want you involved in Love Europe as our church family? Will you stand with me as we pray and listen to God? The band is going to sing a song of surrender. Of God, I am yours, you are mine. I'll stretch out beyond the oceans. Will you use me? And as you sing, I want you to make an altar right there where you're sitting, standing. God, what are you saying to me? How do you want to use me? I know you want to use me in my neighborhood. I know you want me to use me in my community. But where do you want to use me beyond? God, speak to us at this moment.